You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're talking about the B2B buyer's journey, how it's changed, the way that impacts marketing, and why it's so difficult for B2B marketing organizations to think like buyers. To help us, we have with us Mike Pastor, content strategist, technology advice, and host of the B2B Nation podcast. Mike, thank you for your time, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Chad. I'm excited to be here. So we always like to start with kind of a random question for the audience to get to know you. And I'm always curious to know something that you may be passionate about that those that only know you through work might be surprised to learn about you. Oh, let's see. So, I mean, I've got a woodworking hobby. I'm on the board of a nonprofit that supports our local elementary school. I've got a couple of elementary school kids. But the thing that I bring up from time to time with people that really gets them interested is that my wife and I and our kids, as they get older, make our own maple syrup. And (laughs) most of my team and colleagues actually know this, but technology advice has grown quickly and grown uh, both (laughs) in the U.S. and internationally in the past year. And our U.S., our headquarters is in Nashville, Tennessee. we got a lot of people in Louisville, Kentucky, both great cities but not hotbeds of maple syrup production. No. So at ice breaking <laughs> events and on get to know you calls over the past couple of years, I bring up the maple syrup thing and people go, I love maple syrup. How exactly <sighs> do you make it? <laughs> That's got to be a great pastime for the family, though. It is. It's a it's a great thing to do in winter. I'm in New England. Winters can be a little long, a little dark, and it's a good way to kill a Saturday or a Sunday when the temps are cold outside is watch the maple syrup boil. So my challenge that I'm giving myself today is to see if I can work maple syrup into our discussion somehow. Uh, all right. Well, let's see if we can do it. And let's start with talking about the buyer's journey and why it's so important for organizations to really understand it and get inside it. Yeah, so the buyer's journey, of course, is the steps that people take to make a purchase with your organization. And there are some things about the B2B buyer's journey, especially in B2B tech, that we need to dispel right away. One is there is no monolithic B2B buyer's journey. People talk about it like it's something you can go and see, like it's in a museum or at Disney World. It's the (laughs) B2B buyer's journey. Perfect example of that. Take an application like Zoom. Over the past year and a half or so, thousands and thousands of people have gone to Zoom and paid $15 and gotten the one that lets you have longer meetings with more people. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you have a B2B buyer's journey for like these complicated cloud infrastructure things like multinational financial services with a lot of compliance regulations and geofencing and all the stuff they need to take into consideration. Both of those purchases come at the end of a B2B buyer's journey, but they are radically, radically different. And the other thing I think we need to think about is that it's not linear. We see funnels and journey maps and paths on slides and things like that. And it's this fairly straight line. It's also, it's not just one person doing it, of course, too. So we got to think about that. Gartner tried to depict this in something that became called the spaghetti chart. And it had kind of this chart. (laughs) I remember that. Every possible thing that could go wrong and clog up a B2B buying (laughs) process. And it looked like one of those mazes my kids like to do where you have to get the mouse to the cheese. (laughs) I think a lot of marketers understand that it's more complex than we can draw. I think where it gets tricky is that marketing isn't done in a vacuum. 
You've got CEOs and CFOs, maybe old school on their thoughts on marketing. Maybe their KPIs aren't something people are using a lot today. Maybe they've invested in real-time analytics and want real-time results. So realistically, some of these journeys take some time. So there's a disconnect right off the bat for a lot of people that the reality of B2B buying today and what some of their leaders expect might be a little out of whack. And so when we look at it today, I mean, now we're talking about a, a journey, you know, wildly different journeys, as, as you mentioned. Has it changed or has it evolved from what it was, say, 10 years ago? And has it even gotten more complex because of COVID and the things that we've seen? Like, are there some areas we could point out where we could highlight for marketers and salespeople? Hey, this is this may be what you're used to, but this is the reality today. Yeah, it's a good question. Over the past 10 years, I'd say it's gotten incredibly complex. Um, if you look at the work that Scott Brinker has done, Scott Brinker, if you don't know, is kind of the godfather of MarTech, the marketing applications that marketers use, a lot of the SaaS-based apps. So Scott does a census every now and then of the MarTech landscape. From 2019 to 2020, his count went from 6,000 products to 8,000 products. Now, you don't need all of them. If you're shopping for email marketing <laughs> software that is a subset of the 8,000, it's still a lot of shopping to do and a lot of research to do. Going hand in hand with the complexity is risk. Okay, you see that it went from 6,000 to 8,000, added 2,000 vendors in a year. But in that same year, 600 vendors disappeared from the MarTech space entirely, from going out of business to being acquired. Uh, somebody once said the difference between B2B and B2C is people are spending other people's money. So when you screw <laughs> up with your money... It affects you. You're out $2,000 and you think, you know, gee, maybe that guy wasn't a prince from Nigeria after all. So uh, <laughs> it's a noisy market. It's a There's risk involved. Buyers are getting bombarded with messages pretty much everywhere they go, on the web, email, social media. B2B marketing has become in some ways kind of this crazy open air market with sellers just hawking their wares everywhere. So it's gotten complicated. It's gotten risky. It's gotten noisy. Has COVID impacted it? I don't I don't know. It disrupted a lot of buyers' journeys because what they bought changed. You saw a lot of people suddenly buying remote access tools, online event platforms, collaboration tools. Um, one of the, I think the most memorable conversation that I had related to the pandemic was with a guy who led a sales team at a big, big IT vendor household name. And they spent a lot of their time selling what you might think of as the plumbing of IT, servers, cables, power and cooling stuff for data centers. And one day right. that just stopped because no one was <sighs> going to go into the data center and no manager was going to tell you get two other people and go into the data center where it's tightly spaced and you can't social distance and change these cables. And instead, he told me what we were selling is carts. We can't keep carts in stock. I'm like, carts? Uh -oh. No. Hospitals were using carts to move equipment from room to room. Schools were using carts. At my kid's school, the art teacher didn't have a room anymore. He had an, she had an art cart so that they could keep the kids in one place, not mix kids, and she could bring the lesson to them. And so these guys went from selling servers and power and cooling and cables and all this other stuff to carts. Interesting. And so when when you have those types of changes and, and we, we can either focus on the evolution over the last 10 years or on COVID or just anything in between. But when you have those changes, because it is a, a rapidly changing market and you never know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in three or four weeks or a month. How does marketing have to compensate uh, or how should they 
better think about staying in touch with that buyer's journey uh, and, and understanding that it is fluid. Like, how are they supposed to set up their their processes and their their approaches or their metrics? You know, are there things that we can help marketing and salespeople understand about the the new fluidity? Let's say. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, in short, when it comes to marketing, you can't scream what everyone else is screaming, and it's unwise <laughs> to try and out scream everyone else because then you add to the noise and complexity. You're probably in a lot of cases better served by helping buyers navigate the complexity. And there's this concept of buyer enablement out there. I think maybe Kerry Cunningham brought this up when he was on your show, but it kind of came out of like Gartner and Forrester. And it says that people know what to buy. Their problem is like how to buy it. And that's where they get stuck. More than three quarters of buyers told Gartner their last B2B purchase decision was just too darn complex. So I think the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, are you helping these people out and providing value, or are you adding to that noise and complexity we just discussed? And there's another part of the equation here that rarely gets discussed, but it's important to a content person like me, and that's how and where you meet your buyers. Just like we said, there's no monolithic buyer's journey. There's no monolithic buyer. So right. when you talk about buying committees, that's somewhere in the area of six to 10 people, depending on the company and what they're thinking about buying. They all have different preferences around the type of content they consume and how they consume it. So you need to think about that and be thoughtful about your message, because how do you convey your information to somebody who just flat out doesn't read PDF papers or doesn't attend webinars? Um, and if you don't take steps to make sure your message is hitting all those people and taking all their preferences into account, you're really leaving people behind. So maybe that person who won't attend a webinar would listen to it in a podcast format if it was audio that they could just listen to. So are you doing that as something marketers should be asking? Are you making sure that your content and your message is available to all of these people, however it is they like to consume information? And so how difficult, why, let's say why, why is it so difficult for companies to think like buyers, right? I remember, you know, 10, man, is it 10 years ago when I was working for digital agencies, we were doing, you know, buyer journey maps and friction point analysis and, and all of that kind of stuff. But as I, as I think through it, I don't know that we were ever truly thinking about it like a buyer. And I'm curious why that is so difficult and maybe what companies can do to become more focused on that. Yeah, this is the big question. I put this question to a marketer named Paul Fifield on our B2B Nation podcast, and I really liked his answer, so I've, I've been basically using it while crediting him. A lot of B2B tech companies are very product and tech-focused, and a lot of the founders are engineers, and you kind of get into that left-brain, right-brain stuff. Like, this is how they think. They want to tell you what their tech does and how it does it and how they made it. So... What I have learned from maple syrup is that there are people out there who enjoy <laughs> maple syrup and who don't care one bit about how it's made. So increasingly, the number of tech buyers out there aren't tech people at all. Somewhere in the area of 40 to 50 percent are what Gartner calls business technologists. And their baseline tech understanding is higher than, say, the previous generation because they're digital natives. But you've got a right. noisy market where everybody's yelling about features and how products work, and you can't hang your hat on that because then you sound like everybody else. So this is where I think your business storytelling comes in handy. Uh, George Hammer used to be the chief content officer at IBM, and I heard a podcast with George, and I thought he summed this up beautifully. And he said, you have to make people care. 
And I think you do that by combining your storytelling and thinking like a buyer, because if people don't care, you can't sell them anything. Yeah. And that's got to be a difficult challenge, especially when you're talking about the myriad of content channels, the myriad of voices you have to use. I mean, it can create a bit of a, of a challenge. If you had to, if you had to give marketers and, and organizations that are focused on that, like two things, two things that you think would be the most important for them to really embrace or do to make them be more buyer focused, more buyer aware, think like buyers, what would those two things be? So the first would be exactly what we just said, thinking like a buyer. Would you do the steps that you're asking people to do before they make a purchase? And whether that's sign up for this or that, devote an hour to a webinar, given all that these people have going on. I mean, is that how you buy? Like, or at what point do you do that? Right. Your first touch right. from a vendor asks like 12 or 13 questions and gets all this information. That's moving kind of quickly. Right. If you think about marketing is building relationships, it's sort of like business dating and you'd be moving really <laughs> fast if you were doing that. The number one complaint about dating and I haven't had to date in a long time, but it's always been like that person talked too much about themselves. So you know, right. some lessons you can bring to marketing from dating. The second thing I would say is recognize that the buyer is in control now, and that's not going to change. I think uh, when Kerry Cunningham was on, he had kind of mentioned that the buyer hasn't changed. I might challenge that assertion just a little bit. Think about it this way. In the consumer world, the way that we buy music has changed like three times in my lifetime. We bought it in various formats and brought it home. We downloaded it, and now we stream it. And I know people who don't remember at least one of those methods of procuring music. And these are the same people that are making B2B purchase decisions now. The buyers took control of that market, that process for buying music, and now they're doing it in B2B. And that means that if you're not giving people what they want in terms of information and content and your interactions, they've got a whole list of alternatives they can go and explore. All right. So let's pivot here a little bit and let's talk about technology advice. What, what does the company do and how? what was your journey to, to wind up there? Yeah, so Technology Advice is a full-service B2B media company, and our focus is really on helping those B2B tech buyers we've been talking about. That 70% that people say of the journey that's sort of done digitally without the help of salespeople is done with us, basically. We publish some of the most storied brands in B2B tech media. That includes eWeek, Datamation, and Tech Republic. We've got an award-winning content team that I'm proud to be part of that dispenses trusted advice for these tech buyers, basically helping them make informed decisions like out of the noise, what do I need to know before I make this investment? So we help them cut through that complexity and noise that we talked about. We do it in three main channels, which is phone, email, and web. And then we take what we learn and the data that we collect from all these interactions, and we use it to facilitate connections between B2B tech vendors and the buyers. And so that helps us do is it helps us focus on getting vendors messages in front of people at the right place at the right time. So what you won't see, for example, on a technology device site is a ton of flashing display ads and pop ups for our web properties, right? Because we're focused on targeting the right message to the right person and not that sort of spray and pray type of marketing that's really not good for anybody. And I got here about two years ago, uh, almost two years ago, when TA acquired the B2B business of a company called Quinn Street. Uh, and since then, like I said earlier, we've grown domestically and internationally, expanding internationally uh, just in this past year. And um, the exciting thing is we're really just scratching the surface of what we can do with all of the information and data that we get from all these various engagements with buyers. 
Love it. Awesome. All right. So we ask all of our guests kind of two standard questions towards the end of each interview. And the first is simply, you know, you're a prospect for a lot of people out there trying to sell something. Everybody seems to be these days. And I'm always curious when you don't have a trusted referral into you, somebody's not saying, Hey, you should talk to this person. What is it that you find works best for you when someone's trying to capture your attention and earn the right to time on your calendar? Yeah, I think the brand folks are going to love this, but it's familiarity with you as a seller or with your brand. Uh, I am just much more likely to give someone my attention if I've heard of one of those two things. And I could be a sucker for good creative, but it doesn't mean that I'll act on it. I might just admire it from afar and say, hey, that was a really good one. <laughs> yeah, I've got a database full of, hey, those are cool, but not responded to. <laughs> no, it's like uh, I mentioned recently with somebody, we were talking about old beer commercials and like I can't connect the brands to the commercials, right? Like I know the commercials. Fair. I know the less filling tastes great. Ask me which beer it was. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. The only one I can remember is the frogs, the Budweiser frogs. That's really go. the only one. That's the only one I got, though. I'm, I'm not even a beer drinker, so I can totally understand. For me, for me, it has a tendency to be that, you know, show me you know me. Show me you know you. Don't talk about you. I don't care. Yep. Uh, no offense to those people, but I don't really care. Like, tell me you know my problems. Like, help me figure out, you know, show me you know you've done some homework. All right, so... Last question, we call it the acceleration insight. If there was one thing you could tell marketers, just one thing, one piece of advice that if they listen to you believe would help them achieve or exceed their goals, what would it be and why? Yeah, so there's this idea out there, and I don't know that I'm 100% on board with this, but I find that intriguing, that says we over-focus on needs when we talk to buyers and that the real challenge a lot of B2B tech buyers are facing is change. And we brought a change management guru named Rob Bogue onto B2B Nation to talk about how if you understood change management, you could be a better marketer. The idea is basically this. We all recognize our needs, right? You hear people say, I need to eat better, I need to exercise more, I need to get the oil changed in the car, but we don't really act on them until we reach some sort of inflection point. When you think about in tech, how everything is connected these days, replace that one app and it impacts 100 other things that are managed by 200 different people. A lot of those people are uncomfortable with change and they don't want your change to disrupt what they're doing. So if you can get an idea from your prospects of what exactly they're facing and how you can help them navigate these change issues, then it could open up a lot of opportunities for you. It's like you clear that blockage and see what happens. So I think thinking about what you're trying to sell one app, what does it mean down the line? is incredibly important these days because everything is interconnected. So I would explore that pro that idea with prospects. What does this mean for your organization? Okay, you want to buy one app, but how many people is this going to disrupt and what can we do to ease that? And whether that's another product or service or that's connecting with someone, a customer who is in a similar situation and how did they do it and it worked out for them. But I would explore that because everybody knows their needs and it doesn't mean they're in a rush to fix those needs and address them right away. I love it. Mike, if the listeners are interested in talking more about these topics or learning more about technology advice, is there a specific place you'd like us to send them? Yeah, link, LinkedIn. You can always connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, if you're you know, in the tech space, marketing space and looking for a job, technology advice is always hiring. You can check out our career page and we can always uh, think about these things and, and uh, go off on them in person and maybe have a little conversation. But I would say LinkedIn and check out the technology advice careers page if you want to get to know me better. 
I love it. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show today. It's been a pleasure, Chad. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode. You know the drill, b2brevexec.com. Share it with friends, family, coworkers. And until next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.